0: Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined by Sergey Radchenko, who is a historian of the Cold War, as well as the Wilson E. Schmidt Distinguished Professor at the Henry A. Kissinger Centre for Global Affairs, which is uh, part of John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Sergey. Yesterday, or in fact, it was the day before, but yesterday it it made the news that um, Henry Kissinger gave a speech in which he said that the Ukraine would have to make territorial or should make territorial concessions to Russia. Uh, This provoked quite a strong backlash among people in Westminster, I'd say, people in Washington, and particularly people on Twitter, who seem to think that any concession towards Russia is, is appeasement and weakness. It's not something Kissinger's often been accused of, uh, appeasement and being weak on in Cold War matters. W- what do you make of how this debate played out yesterday on social media?
1: Well, the social media is famous for misinterpreting uh, what people say or, or, or making uh, a big fuss out of nothing. In this particular case, I think Kissinger was referring to pushing the Russians back to the lines of 24th of February, and uh, uh, perhaps seeking some sort of a peaceful solution on that basis. However, his words have been interpreted as, you know, sort of a peace for territory, which I don't think is correct. He actually did appeal for the status quo ante, didn't
0: he? That's what he I said, think he, he status, status quo words.
1: ante. And of course, what he meant by status quo ante is the situation as it existed on the 23rd of February. Of this year. Now the counter argument to this should you know is, has been that well we should not tell the Ukrainians what to do, and if they feel like they they can push or should you know push the Russians out of those states of DNR and LNR or Crimea, then it should be up to them. To which I think Kissinger would say, well, we have to also consider the broader implications of that, i.e., would that result in a in a conflagration? If would that result in some kind of a regional widening, regional war, or God forbid, Russia resorting to nuclear weapons? So I think what Kissinger said actually is fairly responsible as an as, as, uh, as a statesman with great deal of experience behind his shoulders, he was, uh, he was uh, talking about a way to find a negotiated solution to this war. I think everybody understands that this war will somehow come to a negotiated solution. It's not, it's not an all or nothing. The question is, where are the lines going to be drawn? So he's suggesting that perhaps pushing Russia out of those territories that it has captured since uh, February twenty fourth would suffice for some sort of a peace deal, but of course so much remains unknown. Would the Russians uh, be willing to do that? Will the Ukrainians be willing to stop at those lines? This is of course not very clear. He used the
0: phrase uh, balance of power, did he not? And I think the that's clearly been his way of understanding statecraft throughout his his long career. And I think he suggested that Ukraine should be neutral. And I think to a lot of people now, perhaps sort of uh, made slightly crazy by the war, the idea of Ukrainian neutrality is itself not good enough. It must either be a fully westernized state or nothing. And then on the Russian side, it must be absorbed into Russia. I think for a lot of Ukrainians, as I understand it, Kissinger's position is quite sensible but it's possibly the the politicians west and east of, of Ukraine and Kissinger have very different ideas.
1: Well, Kissinger has said various different things about NATO enlargement, throughout years, as it were, if you go back to the mid-1990s, Kissinger was one of those who actually argued very forcefully for NATO enlargement at that time when this debate was being had, that was being held in the United States. Of course, in that in that context, we were just talking about the enlargement into Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and Poland, but Kissinger was forcefully in favor in more in recent years, he has been saying about Ukraine that well, it should it should serve as a bridge; it should not separate Russia from the West, and so on and so forth. So one can interpret those remarks to mean that he's against NATO enlarging into Ukraine. But to be fair, this is not some sort of a marginal opinion. This is very much a mainstream opinion in policy circles in the West, in the United States. In Britain as well, that is to say that it's very unlikely that Ukraine will be able to join NATO in the foreseeable future anyhow. So the question is really, should the West be much more outspoken about it? And actually Zelensky himself, President Zelensky has complained about it even before the war. He said, you know, why don't you just tell us that we are not going to get into NATO? Why don't you say this openly? And this has not been made clear. And that has... Perhaps unduly created uh, complications for for Ukraine first and foremost. Do you have a sense
0: that um, perhaps facts on the ground may be changing slightly in recent days against the West and and, and and for Russia, and that the overriding impression we've had that Russia got this very wrong, which it seems to have done, and has and the war has not progressed as well as Russia hoped. Perhaps in recent days that's starting to come apart. So therefore, the logic of Kissinger's position becomes stronger rather than weaker.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, a, a war is a very difficult business to predict. When uh, the war started, uh, there was an expectation, not just in the Kremlin, but also among experts in the West, uh, among military experts in the West, that uh, Russia would, would have Uh, would achieve a very quick victory over Ukraine and would be able to basically topple the Ukrainian government. I mean, the Russians evidently expected to do that within sort of three days to a week, right? That did not happen. The Russians ran into very serious logistical and other problems, morale problems, fighting this very difficult battle on the outskirts of Kiev, eventually obviously with retreating from there. Then, of course, we had that very long battle over Mariupol, which was eventually effectively uh, won by the Russians, but it hit a huge cost. And, of course, now we are seeing the battle unfold in Donbass. It's progressing. The question is, you know, will that come to stalemate? Will the Russians make gains in the coming weeks i think uh, it's very difficult to say at this point uh, many military experts predict that the that we'll see stalemate by by the summer now if you go back to when the war broke out there wasn't indeed an expectation that in the long term if this war were to last for for a longer period of time the Russians would be able to prevail in the sense that you know the forces are not equal Russia is a much bigger country and has uh, as much as you know it has been molded in in the in the battles in, in Ukraine it still would be able to prevail in the long term I don't know where the consensus on this is at the moment I think we are some people are saying well look What's happening in Donbass? Maybe that represents a turning point in the war for Russia, you know, going the positive sort of f- from the Russian perspective in towards some kind of a victory. Others are still saying, well, actually, no, because they they're still they don't have enough forces, they don't have enough manpower to prevail, so it, eventually it's going to be stalemate. I have been saying for weeks, and I think it's it's still, in my opinion, the most likely out- outcome is that we're going to have a stalemate and it's going to move something to move towards some sort of a career. Korean scenario, Like in Korea, we had, you know, back and forth, back and forth, but then front lines stabilized. However, it should be said that for two years still there was a fighting before an uh, armistice was actually concluded. So the Korean War broke out in 1950 think, you know, by 1951 it was pretty much over, but the armistice was not concluded by 1953, and it seems that this is also where this conflict is heading, but again, you know, I'm not a prophet, I'm a historian, so it's very difficult to say, but I think Kissinger is also approaching this conflict from the same perspective. He's looking at this long historical trajectory of similar conflict, and he's saying, well, what is going to happen in the coming weeks, in the coming months? Will the West get tired of this conflict in in Ukraine, we've already seen a kind of Ukraine fatigue. Will the West uh, see mounting economic difficulties because of energy prices, etc., etc.? So, uh, as a result, I think he's, he's looking for some sort of a peaceful settlement, which will probably not satisfy either side, but which conflict has ever been settled on the basis of uh, complete satisfaction? Well, there have been, you know, the Second World War, for example, but I don't think that we're heading towards that sort of scenario with, uh, you know, Russia's uh, looming defeat or something, I, I think Kissinger understands that. Do you think uh, perhaps among some
0: Western policymakers on the the more hawkish end, there is a sort of unspoken feeling, and it can't be spoken because it's morally very problematic, that um, the longer things drag on, the more of a quagmire it is for Putin, the more he suffers. Ukrainians may have to suffer doing it, but it strategically suits the West to have Putin stuck with this kind of Iraq-like situation in Ukraine
1: well it i probably benefits the west's interest in the sense of you know russia is weakened thereby um i guess you could you could argue that there you know, there are certainly people out there arguing that this 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 benefits the west's interest to see russia being sort of moulded like they have been in ukraine At the same time, this interest probably has to be counterbalanced against another interest, and that is the interest in in trying to bring this conflict to close in order to avoid complications. And the two complications that come to mind that are especially severe are this uh, escalates into something greater than what we have seen already, i.e. a broader regional war potentially with the use of of weapons of mass, mass destruction. That still cannot be ruled out. We've talked about this. And the second complication is that as this war Continues. Yes, Russia suffers, Russia is bogged down, etc. But Ukraine is in the state of meltdown economically, because uh, obviously, you know, it's in the state of a war, and so require, it will require greater and greater economic and military support. And on top of this, you have higher energy prices. And on top of this, you have, you know, some kind of mounting economic crisis in the West with political implications for ruling uh, parties, etc., in, in, in leading Western nations. Nations. So all of that is is really, you know, all, all of those scenarios are quite nasty. And so from that perspective, I suppose, there is a growing... Understanding, I think, in the West that perhaps we need to move towards a negotiated solution. The question is, you know, how do you get there, and especially how do you bring the Russians and the Ukrainians to agree to this? Given that it is Ukraine that is being under attack, yeah, it's very difficult to tell them. Well, you know, why don't you just stop fighting and find some kind of a solution? And the second thing is, it may be that Putin is uh, oh, is in 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 it a hundred percent. That is to say, we don't know what he's in. A- end goals are, you know, is it to capture, is it to push all the way to Kiev, is it to capture Donbass and that's it, you know, what are his exit strategies, should we be trying to provide some kind of off-ramp for him when we don't know what his actual goals are, and would not some sort of negotiation with the Russian amount to appeasement that would then just cause Russia to become ever more aggressive in Ukraine? So those are all very, very good questions. But I think you know Kissinger's Kissinger's position is not unreasonable when he talks about this matter. So those, it's not the first time that we have a, a nasty conflict like this in the in in the last you know hundred years of history, and uh, it's 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 reasonable to talk about solutions that are other, something other than uh, zero or everything.
0: Yes. One argument you hear a lot is that Putin should not be rewarded for his aggression and and therefore that any territorial concessions would be rewarding the aggressor and perhaps encouraging him to do more. Do you you think that's simplistic thinking?
1: Well, when people raise this argument, they are characteristically unable to define what exactly they're talking about uh, and what exactly they mean by territorial concessions. And that is exactly why we had that blow up over Kissinger's comments. So, at on what basis should, for example, talks be held? Would it be a status quo in situ? That is to say, everybody, there's ceasefire, everybody stops fighting. But that means that large part of Ukrainian territory, which has been captured after the February 23rd, it remains in under Russian occupation, you know, that would clearly be unacceptable to Ukrainian authorities, for example. This would be clearly unacceptable to the Ukrainian public opinion and probably to much of the West. You know, who would be willing to, negotiate to, to actually allow this? Unless, of course, there is no, you know, unless, of course, we end up in a stalemate like the Korean War and simply, you know, neither side actually has the ability or the willingness to continue fighting. Now, the second possibility is that the Russians are pushed back to the lines of the 24th of February. Now, at the time when the Russians are actually making gains in Donbass, this seems like a remote possibility or at least not an immediately obvious possibility. However, we could see a change on, on, on the ground militarily by... Let's say you know by midsummer or something, and then we could talk again about some sort of ceasefire on the on that basis, on return to status quo. And this is what Kissinger was talking about. Finally, we have a third possibility, and this is where it becomes very interesting because let's say the Ukrainians reach those lines, and then they decide, okay, let's go and cross over, and let's try to capture DNR and LNR, regain them as it were for Ukraine, because they are internationally recognized as a part of Ukrainian territory, and also perhaps go into. Crimea. That raises a whole other set of questions, including should the Western, should the West continue with its military support for Ukraine? Should it somehow try to moderate the flow of weapons in order to bring Ukraine to negotiation table? Would that be morally right? Would that be geopolitically correct, etc.? And that is where off all bets are off. But we're way. You know, we're not even there, even close to that point yet. Uh, Some Ukrainians, there are Ukrainian voices that are saying that this is exactly what Ukraine should do. It should go there and try to fight back and get, get those territories that it had lost in 2014 back as part of Ukraine. Uh, would the West be able to do something about it? Would it want to do something about it? I mean it is seems like a morally supportable proposition, but on the other hand, it also risks escalation let's say the Ukrainian forces move into crimea Would the russia what would the Russians do? Would they then resort to nuclear combat in order to avoid the losing crimea you know it's it's a possibility, so there are lots of things to balance here and and to try to understand. And it's not a question of simple answers. And that is why the social media is so bad, because, you know, on the social media, you have a few characters to kind of loudly proclaim your position. You know, all or nothing, Putin should be defeated. And, uh, you know, uh, Moscow should be or here, Russian forces should push all the way back to Moscow and Putin should be overthrown. I mean, come on, let's be realistic and try to figure out whether there's nuance to this position.
0: Well, I quite agree with you on social media. I suppose the worry is the extent to which social media is is affecting politicians uh, and the decisions they make. If you look back to when the Soviet Union withdrew from Afghanistan, for instance, my understanding is that it was presented not as a humiliation to the Soviet Union, but as a sort of an honourable withdrawal that they were they were almost giving back land to to Afghanistan in a sort of honourable way. Do you think the problem is now we don't have the subtlety of mind in Westminster and perhaps Washington to think of constructive solutions that might get us out of this situation, which is, as you say, very, very dangerous.
1: Well, if you look at the withdrawal from Afghanistan in 1989, February 1989, this, of course, was a a process that began soon after Mikhail Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union. Now, he understood that the invasion of Afghanistan was a bad mistake. I would even say that it was even before, it was clear before Gorbachev, even Brezhnev, who was, of course, under on whose watch that invasion happened in December 19. 79, I think understood pretty quickly, to the extent that he could understand anything, he was a little bit, you know, he is mentally already uh, in, in serious decline, but he, but many other people around him, understood that this had been a mistake. They had not anticipated this kind of resistance against Soviet occupation, nor did they anticipate the Western help to the Mujahideen, which then made it all the more difficult to attain lasting peace in Afghanistan. So they started looking for an exit, but it really intensified but under Gorbachev, who just realized, look, this is a bleeding wound, we have to get out of there, but remember that it took 10 years from the point of Soviet invasion in 1979 to February 1989, it took 10 years for the Soviets to actually get out of Afghanistan, and it was not a forlorn conclusion even under Gorbachev. There were people, even in his circle, people like uh, Eduard Shevardnadze, who was actually a liberal foreign minister, he was saying, you know, we should continue helping the our people in Kabul, and so it took actually really action from Gorbachev to actually pull out. Now, I would say that, yes, a broader improvement, you know, in, in Soviet-American relations, Soviet-Western relations, of course helped a great deal because that in that context, Gorbachev did not have to, you know, it was not it did not have to be presented as a great loss to the Soviet Union it was kind of presented as a reasonable thing to do in the context of the ending of the Cold War so if you if you if you project that to the to our present day first of all we are missing a key component here we're missing Mikhail Gorbachev we need a Gorbachev Putin is not a Gorbachev so we have to you know see beyond Putin hope that you know, there was an interview earlier today in the in the Ukrainian newspaper by the head of the Ukrainian military in Intelligence who claim that Putin has cancer and many other ailments. Now, I don't want to go there. I think it's, you know, I would take this kind of claims with a large grain of salt. But yeah, we all kind of expect that Putin will go at some point. And the question then becomes: well, what happens next? And will the person who comes after Putin will just basically say, you know, this was a terrible mistake. Let's see if we can get out of there somehow. And when and if this happens, I hope this happens soon, yeah? I hope. But it's just my hope. We cannot, we don't know. It may It may take several years before we reach this point. But at some point, this is bound to happen. Putin is going to be off the stage. There's going to be somebody else. And then the question is, how is this, you know, and this is where the Western policy, I think, becomes very important. Because at that point, I think the West will have to provide incentives to try to figure out how to facilitate Russia's exit from Ukraine. Unless, of course, Russia is defeated militarily before that. But, but as, we, as we've as talked about, this this this, this is not necessarily going to happen. So the the sad thing here, and and this is, of course, horrible for Ukraine, for the Ukrainian people who are are suffering as a result of this, and and already uh, tens of thousands of people have died in this conflict, but the sad thing is, you know, this is likely to continue for some time, and uh, although in the long term, I have no doubt that Russia is going to be defeated or is going to leave Ukraine one way or another, you know, it's in the long term. But But after Putin is out of the way, I think we should really have a strategy for how to uh, facilitate the dialogue uh, with the Kremlin. And I think that's where Kissinger's insights really come in very useful. I mean, Kissinger is 98 years old. He's seen a lot of stuff. Yeah, he's seen superpowers collapse. He's seen wars being won and lost. On his watch, the United States withdrew from Vietnam and then bounced back to, to glory, as it were. You know, a lot of people were saying in the 1970s that the West was in decline because America lost in Vietnam. Well, there it goes, you know. It came back in the 1980s and won the Cold War. So I think we need to have that kind of long perspective that Kissinger provides through his long service in the U.S. government, through his work you know, in academic work and so on and so forth, and apply that those insights to our understanding of Russia-Ukraine relations, but also importantly to our understanding of where Russia fits in the global order. And this is what also what Kissinger talked about. He said, well, you know, Russia is not going to disappear and we have to keep a... Keep in mind that it is a player in European politics and in some ways in global politics as well. If you follow what Kissinger has been saying over the last uh, month, uh, weeks and month. In fact, I was just uh, at an event with Kissinger in Washington um, a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about China there. And he, you know, he was he was really concerned about China. He was, he was really laser focused on China, and it was saying, well, if you look at the at the strategic competition between the United States and China, Russia is an important player there. So we need to, in the longer term, figure out how to create contradictions between Russia and China. Is it possible? I don't know if it's possible. Myself, you know, I've studied Sino-Russian relations for years, and I can see you know, why they are as, as good as they are. But I can see where Kissinger is coming from.
0: And the general uh, perception has been that the war has pushed... Russia and China closer together. And so therefore, you'd think the longer it goes on, uh, the worse it is for for longer-term Western interests.
1: Well, and that is interesting. First of all, uh, you could look at this uh, from the following perspective. There's a Chinese saying, to kill a chicken in order to scare a monkey. In Chinese. Uh, So, what the United States is doing now, and the West is doing with regard to to, uh, Russia, is killing the chicken in order to scare the monkey, and the monkey is China. So, you know, I think the Chinese did not expect how this war would unfold. I mean, Ukraine was not seen as any kind of power uh, worth mentioning. I mean, in this sense, the Ukrainians have already taught a lesson. To the Russians, into the world, yeah. Even if they are not able to capture Donbass, or even if this comes to to stalemate of some kind, like the Korean war, but still the Ukrainians have already taught the world not to underestimate Ukraine. So the Chinese have, I think, got their lesson from this. And their position in this conflict between Russia and Ukraine has been eh, kind of ambiguous, actually. They have not really been supporting Russia all that much. Yeah, rhetorically they have. They've said, oh yeah, let's blame NATO for this, and let's, uh, they've talked about biological weapons in Ukraine, funded by Hunter Biden or whatnot. You know, they've done But this is propaganda. But if you look at what they're really doing, the Chinese are looking after their own interests and they do not necessarily want to be seen as just backing Russia to bitter end, as it were. So they've been kind of a little bit on on the fence here. Uh, nevertheless, nevertheless, it is also important to note that Sino-Russian relations continue to be fairly close. Fairly close. They issued their joint declaration on February fourth before the conflict began, uh, and uh, we've seen uh, a, 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 this trajectory of ever closer relations uh, between them, directed primarily against the West, of course, because I think people in Beijing and the kind of policy community in Moscow both see uh, see that they have commonalities, common interests between China and Russia, and those common interests are primarily in opposing the West. So the Chinese see that side of this, and also remember that China and Russia also have a long history of conflict, and that conflict was extremely bitter in the 1960s and 1970s. In fact, it was so bitter that Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon at that time, i.e. in 1971-72, saw an opening for the United States and got in there and basically played China against the Soviet Union. So I think the conclusion from that for the Chinese and for the Russians is do not allow your relations to deteriorate to such an extent that the United States or anybody else will try to play you against one another. So they have learned, and that makes me a little bit skeptical about Henry Kissinger's kind of, you know, card-playing approach here, that you can somehow uh, build up relations with Russia eventually or maybe, you know, look beyond Putin in order to kind of use Russia against China. I would not I'm not, you know, as a historian of Sino-Russian relations, I'm not too confident about this this approach of his. But it's it, it's a worthwhile uh, approach anyway to think about.
0: Isn't perhaps uh, one of the bigger problems that if you look beyond Putin, uh, regime change in Russia is not not necessarily favorable to the West, uh, because uh, a Shoigu figure, someone like that, more of a military thinker, might think. Uh, strategically, East is the answer for Russia, not Western, whereas Putin has always been preoccupied with the West, even if it means that he ends up hating it.
1: I don't believe this. You know, I, I read the stuff that they publish. They have this uh, strategic thinkers like Karaganov, for example, publishing writing about, you know, Russia turning to the East and uh, finding its future in a close relationship with Africa, etc. You have people like Nutri Trenin, who was used to be the head of the Moscow Carnegie Center, who's just a couple of days ago published an article again saying that, yeah, Russia should look towards, you know, should uh, uh, build up its relations with China and the Middle East, etc., and turn away from from Europe but I think there's an the uh, they are writing, they're saying this, but it, it is really all kind of connected to the reality as they see in the realities that Putin is in power, therefore they have to adjust their strategy to, to fit the reality. But if Putin drops dead tomorrow, uh, the, you know, the the policy community will come together, they'll get their heads together and uh, I don't know that there's so many people there that will say oh, you know, uh, an existential struggle with the West is really in Russia's interest. I don't think anybody will say that. Now, you mentioned Shoigu and and the so-called Siloviki, the power ministries, and admittedly, they are the ones making policy at the moment. It's not the policy blob. It's not people like Karaganov and, and various others. I mean, they never really made any policy. They just try to really uh, rationalize and explain Russian policy. And it's the military that is making it. But here, you know, I'm thinking back to precedents, historical precedents. Think back to, let's say, March 1953. You know, Stalin, in his late years in power, was very had turned very anti-Western and was thinking of some kind of a third world war that would be coming sometime soon but once he dropped dead there was a kind of a collective leadership and at early stages interestingly even some hideous personalities like uh, Lavrentiy Beria who was the head of the secret police and under Stalin actually came up with very innovative steps in in terms of improving relations with the west for example you know considering the possibility of pulling out of germany and making germany and you know a neutral state at that time obviously east germany Germany was under Soviet control, and then it by, you know, and then they also uh, liberalized domestically. In 1955 you had the people like Khrushchev and Bulganin reach out to the West and actually meet with Eisenhower in Geneva. In 1956 Khrushchev then condemned Stalin, so you had that kind of movement. It did not mean that the Cold War ended. In fact, uh, Cold War. The Cold War continued for for many years, but we had a, a certainly moment there where you you know the uh, Soviet leaders stepped away from very confrontational policies that Stalin had pursued and were actually looking for some form of accommodation with the West or recognition with uh, by the West. Uh, because they understood that the policy, as had been pursued, was actually erroneous. And that, you know, that group of leaders included the military, included the intelligence, etc. So I would not say that if, let's say, Putin drops down, clearly Putin exercises, you know, a huge role in Russian policymaking in the moment. Let's say he's out of the picture. Yeah, you still have people like Shoigu, presumably interested in, you know, the glory for the Russian military. You also have in the intelligence community, but you also have the economic ministries. You also have, you know, economists there in the kind of broader policy circles who are saying, you know, this is crazy. This is crazy. We should do we should do something else. And I I don't think we should uh, uh, discount this possibility.
0: I suppose uh, Henry Kissinger might outlive Putin, given that he never seems to show any sign of um dramatic deterioration.
1: I hope he does. Look, I, I you know, a lot of people, a lot, a lot of Russians, a lot of Russians are hoping for Putin's demise, probably not a majority, but we have to be realistic here. There's a large number of, uh, you know, Russian people in, in Russia itself who are very chauvinistic and very imperialistic, and I hope they uh, eventually learn that this is not uh, a path to a brighter future. But there are also many reasonable Russians who look at this and think, oh my God, what did we, what have we got ourselves into? How did we get here? And won't things improve if the Tsar finally is ousted or just dies or something?
0: Sergey, so, okay, let's end it there. But thank you very much for coming on to Americano. I do hope we can get you on again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.